Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello, I'm your co-host, Charles Sims, and welcome to In Social Work. This episode is an open panel discussion on the importance of social workers becoming more engaged in the political process. In the United States, most social workers enter professional training with a plan to follow a clinically oriented path. Our guests for this podcast offer their thoughts and insights on why it is important for all social workers to step more directly into political activities. The panel includes Drs. Linda Plitt Donaldson, Christy Holmes, and Charles E. Lewis, Jr. Linda Plitt Donaldson, Ph.D., has been an associate professor at the National Catholic School of Social Service since 2004. She has extensive experience in nonprofit social service management and public policy advocacy. Prior to teaching, Dr. Donaldson worked for 10 years in a community-based homeless services agency in Washington, D.C., there providing direct service, directing programs in advocacy, social justice, and family services, and developing affordable housing. Additionally, she worked as a legislative fellow for the late Senator Paul Wellstone. In that capacity, she worked on the mental health components of Senator Wellstone's single-payer health plan, as well as the Senator's and Mrs. Wellstone's domestic violence initiative. Dr. Donaldson continues to maintain a small consulting practice to train and develop the advocacy, organizing, and social change capacity of human service agencies and grassroots communities. Christy Holmes, Ph.D., is a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in topics related to global health, gender and media, and the impact of technology on social relationships. She has spent significant amounts of time in the last five years working on projects related to the United Nations Millennium Development Goals, which include work with Zero Mothers Die and the Millennia 2025 Foundation. She has acted as a moderator for an NGO at the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women and participated as a panelist at the Women's Leaders Forum as part of the United Nations General Assembly. Currently, she serves on the board of the United Nations Women U.S. National Committee as well as working with Given Hour, where she donates clinical time to veterans in need of services but are on a waiting list. In 2014, Dr. Holmes ran for Congress in California's 33rd District. Charles E. Lewis, Jr., Ph.D., is the founder and president of the Congressional Research Institute for Social Work and Policy, also known as CRISP. CRISP is a non-profit organization created to enhance the presence of social work in the United States Congress through its work in conjunction with the Congressional Social Work Caucus.
Previously, Dr. Lewis was the Deputy Chief of Staff and Communications Director for Representative Adolphus Towns and served as the coordinator of the Social Work Caucus until Mr. Towns retired in 2013. Dr. Lewis is also a Principal Associate with the Development Services Group and serves as the Training Director for the Minority Fellowship Program, which is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. This program supports doctoral students in the field of behavioral health. Dr. Lewis was a member of the faculty at Howard University's School of Social Work from 2002 until 2010. There he taught courses in social welfare policy, research, and data analysis. He has also written numerous articles and book chapters on adolescence involvement with the criminal justice system. In this podcast, our guests will cover a number of important topics as they explore this subject. They make the critical point that clinically oriented social work has an important role in participating in the political process. One does not have to give up their passion. Instead, find a cause that has meaning and work towards change. Further, it is suggested that there can be a therapeutic benefit for those we work with through their engagement in policy level work. The use of social media is highlighted and the panel talks about what mediums they use and why. Dr. Holmes also provides insight into her experience in running for political office. Additionally, the panel identifies possible professional opportunities for social workers interested in a career in this arena. This podcast was recorded in October 2016. Welcome everybody listening, social workers and social workers at heart who care about our world and our country and our people and especially people who are vulnerable and living in poverty and injustice. Linda Plitt Donaldson, that's me. We've got Charles Lewis and Christy Holmes. So today we're going to talk about what this election cycle has taught us or reminded us about the importance of social workers being engaged in politics, being engaged in the political process, and being engaged in social policy. This is Christy. One thing I've been talking about with my students lately, many of them are reluctant to get involved in politics because it makes their stomach hurt, especially this particular election cycle. And mm -hmm. this won't matter whether it's this cycle or the next. There's always going to be mudslinging and things that make us uncomfortable, especially when there's such a dividing line between parties the two major mm -hmm. parties particularly. And what I've noticed is much the rhetoric ends up being so black and white. So if, whether we're talking about gun rights or abortion or any of that, it appears as though the country is greatly divided when really most everyone agrees on some of the mm -hmm. basics. So I won't dig mm -hmm. too much into that. And there's a lot more agreement than there is not. But we get very stressed watching all of this happening because it feels like everybody's fighting. And I feel like that's where we can come in and bridge a little bit better than some other professions, especially in the political field when it comes to getting people to talk about things that matter to us without getting terribly heated about it. I've pointed out before we've got nearly a million social workers in this country. And so I think, though, sometimes we get overly confident with the fact we think that's a large voting block. 
when really it's dispersed over 50 states. And what we need is our communities. And we also can't think too highly of ourselves being able to speak for all of our clients and our communities. We need to empower our communities. So instead of it being a million, we could be 5 million, 10 million, you know, 100 million, depending on who we're influencing and who we're making sure has information on whether it's ballot measures that are local. For instance, ones we're working on right now in California can be about plastic bags in the environment, medical marijuana versus recreational marijuana, and the death penalty. So you can pick, you can pick your social justice issue, your environmental issue, anything that you really care about. Are they homeless? And you don't have to necessarily get involved in the mudslinging of candidates. So I feel like there's a lot of room for social workers that we really aren't capturing. That's great. And uh, Charles, you were recently out at the Washington University campus, right, talking to millennials yes, and how the, they could be impacting. What kind of message were you giving to them? Well, it was interesting because it was just a couple of days before the uh, presidential debate was scheduled for Washington University. So everybody was up, you know, there was a heightened awareness of the campaign and I was there to talk about uh, how social workers, and particularly young social workers, can get involved and participate in the political process and actually make a difference. I wanted to show them that voting matters. We've been on this voter empowerment campaign about half a year. This is a campaign with CRISP, which is the Congressional Research Institute, and influencing social policy and the Nancy A. Humphreys Institute for Political Social Work at the University of Connecticut. So we've launched a voting and social work campaign to encourage social workers generally to participate in the political process. So I was there talking to the students and faculty, encouraging students to be more active, in not only in their own participation, but also stepping up and providing some leadership in terms of organizing, getting others to vote, and being more civically engaged. And the reason is that if they want to see things change, they have to be part of the change. Things are not going to change if they don't get involved. So I think it's, we've reached a point now where we see as a profession that uh, we need to take a more active role in making change. Yeah, and I want to build on that, really build on both what you and Christy have said. In my classroom, building on Christy's point about, you know, we're only a million, right, as social workers, but that we have whole communities that we're working with. In my class, we have drawn strength from reflecting on the success of the Black Lives Matter movement, success in galvanizing thousands of people, organizing thousands of people across the country into organized resistance that have moved the Department of Justice and some police departments to look pretty closely at their practices and uh, develop some civilian oversight committees. And these are things that we not, might not be hearing about, some of these small and larger successes that the organized resistance of Black Lives Matter has achieved. The work of Black Lives Matter has caused professional athletes to take risks, to take a knee, right, in the face of a lot of criticism. So we've been having conversations. I mean, that's one we had a whole class on emerging racial justice and just reflecting on that and connecting that. And how can social workers 
and other allied groups connect to these movements and, and discussing how even across the globe people are inspired by Black Lives Matter. I know Palestinian groups have been doing some solidarity organizing, right, around, around shared concerns of, of oppression. I think it, the importance of galvanizing our communities through the organizations with which we work and with whom we struggle is an important role. And they've impacted the presidential election, right? I mean, it would have been nice if we had had more conversation about race and racial justice, but there has been some attention to that. So that's been, I think, an inspiring set of activities for social workers, an example, and a lot of social workers are engaged with Black Lives Matter in those struggles too. Great points. One thing, this is Christy, that we have also been discussing in classes, which you can't really avoid right now, right before the elections, and this will, in some elections, are going to be more grueling than others, or more stressful than others, depending on who's running and the issues being brought forward. And I don't know if you two have noticed, but this round, gay marriage isn't really a thing. You'll see it sometimes on Facebook or whatnot, depending on who your friends are filter. As you know, you'll see as far as appointing Supreme Court justices, some of the more conservative viewpoints that still disagree with gay marriage. But I think it's been a good lesson on how quickly things can change and how quickly things drop from national, you know, boilerplate where everybody's freaking out about it. It passes fairly quickly. So I've been surprised the lack of commentary at all in this campaign. So. I think we can take some solace in the fact that things that we think won't change end up changing. And over not that long of time, I mean, we, we've had an African-American president, now we have a female candidate. But that's a change. That means the children from the last eight years have never, if you have an eight-year-old, they've never seen anything different than having an African-American president. Mm -hmm. And if we end up with a female president, then we'll have kids in their teenage years getting ready to go off to college, but they've never known anything different than an African-American and a female president. So <laughs> they won't know the difference. And so I think we can find some comfort in the way things do change. And also, instead of blocking people on Facebook, which I know, <laughs> I've heard from a lot of students, people are getting riled up on their social media feeds, whatever mm -hmm, it is they're on, mm -hmm. and they end up blocking and making their bubble for themselves so that everybody agrees with them all the time. And I've had to make a special effort to not do that this election season. I want to know what the other side, if you will, thinks. I want to know about those who disagree with me, and they disagree strongly with me. Why do they believe that? And trying to find some sort of understanding of why they feel that way, I think, goes a lot longer in the conversation than just you know splitting views. Like, OK, well, you, you're going to vote for this person. I'm voting for that. Let's just disagree, agree to disagree. That's a very important point and also something that we've been reflecting on as well is, you know, when you're engaging with people, how do you engage with people who feel are diametrically opposed to, have views that are diametrically opposed to yours, or even maybe have methods of communication and expression that are diametrically opposed to yours, that we can't make assumptions about people. And actually, a lot of the anger and recognizing as social workers, right, that a lot of this anger that people are expressing is born in their own pain and their own suffering and maybe being expressed in ways that don't feel constructive but not having other outlets feeling, you know, that they haven't been listened to and they have lost their jobs and they have their lives aren't the same and they don't have the same kind of possibilities as they thought they did or as their parents did or as they did 10 years ago that we have to come to people with a sense of understanding and compassion as hard as that is. I like to talk a little bit about 
why this is kind of a new readjustment for social work because we have not really been involved in politics on a large scale over the past three or four decades, I would say, maybe a little more, because of our focus on uh, professionalism, licensing, and micro social work practice. And so there is still social workers out there who don't see politics as part of what they do as social workers. Some people feel that you shouldn't be too political because getting involved in politics may threaten your nonprofit status if you're working for a nonprofit agency. So I think there's a little bit of adjustment for some social workers in terms of getting getting their feet wet, getting into this fray of politics because it like Christy said earlier, it could be scary because some of it is not uh, not for the faint of heart. Christy, can you talk a little bit about what you discovered when you ran for your congressional seat? <laughs> oh, wow. I learned things I didn't even know I needed to learn. That's the kind of thing you can study for. But one thing before I even say that, because I think you made a very important point, about being afraid to get into the fray because it can be very scary. Most students are coming in from a clinical perspective. They're wanting to do one-on-one. -on -one. They're micro. They don't have any interest in macro. I was there back in the day when I started my program. I just wanted to be a therapist, and I was going to hang my shingle. Macro was not my thing. But over time, I realized you know, we talk about these things over and over so we can support people individually on how they're feeling and coping mechanism. But in the end, unless we change the system, their situation is not going to same. It's not going to change. It's going to stay exactly the same unless things as a whole change. And I think that was more of an aha moment for me that, wow, we have a lot of work to do. And I think that when we talk about it in class or with MSW students in particular, they feel like, wow, so you're saying I'm not going to be effective as a clinician. You know, I can't make a difference individually. And uh, today in particular, we were having this discussion, and I said, look, you guys, it's, it's not all or nothing. And I feel like in social work, we've split it. You're micro or you're macro. It's everything. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to follow the code of ethics top to bottom, not we don't get to pick one part that we work on. And so just because it makes us uncomfortable doesn't mean we avoid it. So we should just go straight into it. It's what we tell our clients mm -hmm. to do. So if you're uncomfortable with politics or you don't even know what's happening, that's where you need to work. So yes, talk individually. Talk one-on-one. -on -one but also find something to get involved in. And a lot of them don't want to get involved in, say, candidates mudslinging and all of that, which is fine. Find something you are comfortable with. Find There's something on the ballot about homelessness. There's something on the ballot about school lunches. There's something you can care about, even if it's plastic bags. I don't care what it is. Find something and help educate the community on why this matters for them, why it's going to affect their lives. Don't make it about you. Don't pretend we our voice alone is going to cover the entire community. They need to have their own voice. Yes, and before you get to your story, Christy, about running yeah. for office, which is fascinating, I just want to echo and, and remind listeners that that you know we're talking about this in this election cycle, but political and policy social work happens all season, all year long. It doesn't require an election for us to get involved. So you don't have to wait for an issue to be on the ballot to take action and care about it and engage in policy discussions and, and uh, join with the people we serve, the people who are impacted by the problem, to bring up solutions and agitate for change and demand change in your own communities. Absolutely, Linda. It gets on the ballot somehow. So somebody's got to do the work before it gets there. And social right. workers can do that part, too. Absolutely. Okay, so Charles asked me what it was like or what I learned running for office. I learned 
Sadly, my very first lesson, because I ran in one of the largest <laughs> districts in the country in Los Angeles for Henry Waxman's seat, was that you need a whole lot of money. So you might be able to get away with not having as much money in other places, but the fundraising can be a real deal breaker or killer. So I realized early on you needed a million dollars just to send out one postcard. And when you have 17 candidates, or we started out with 25 candidates, there's a lot of noise out there as far as who's running. On the positive end, though, I learned that everyone I was running with all had value. I liked everyone. And I don't know if we were unusual in our cohort, but we made friends. And a lot of our debates, the audience would ask us if we could all just all go to Congress because we got along so well, all parties. And that was fun. So I, I learned that it can work. But I think we also had a lot in common. And there was actually a social worker who was a Republican as well, which was a lesson for me. Mm -hmm. So we had differing views on some things, and but we wanted the same thing. Everybody wanted to make the world a better place and make our state a better place, make our, our country a better place. Legislation is hard. I learned that you spend at least six hours a day fundraising, even for local state offices. And when you get into federal office, it's even more. And so a good portion of your day is taken up by having to fundraise in order to keep your seat. So I feel like if perhaps social workers weren't as worried about keeping their seat and just making a difference, that would make a difference. Mm. Uh, Congress only having two years is also a real downside. So Senate gets six years. So once you get in, you've got six years to do something. It's really hard to get a lot done in two years. So I think when you go into Congress, you're just constantly in the never-ending fundraising cycle. So it's really hard to focus on doing your job. And so I started having, I don't know if empathy is the right word, but the gridlock in Congress, because they're also distracted by trying to keep their jobs and they're running down their street to make fundraising calls because they can't do it in the building. I just feel like the fundraising all the way around is a hurdle for everyone. So mm -hmm. we can talk about the people who are in office and how they aren't doing their job, but we're perpetuating it by how much money we're requiring to run. And they don't like it. So a lot of the attachment for voters or the American public sees politicians as corrupt because they're just getting money, blah, 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 and they're being bought by corporations and whatnot. But it's a necessary evil in order to even run for most seats. Mm -hmm. So we have to do something about it, and that's where Citizens United and the endless money and the black money, all of that dark money comes from is something that we have to address. And I felt that way before I started running for office, but I didn't realize it was 80% of it. <laughs> and no one is really interested in primaries so much. And I was the same way as a voter, especially a younger voter. You wait for the big presidential election, the general election, that's when you vote, and you don't realize at that moment that they've already gone through all of the money hurdles. So whoever is left standing is generally the best funded. And the people who are normal are usually the ones who aren't going to make it through all of that. So if we actually want to make changes, we have to go to the drawing board at the primaries when the normal people are running who don't have a whole lot of money. And it's not nearly as exciting because there's not all the ads and there's not the national televised debate, but that's what we're going to make change because as the American public keeps re-electing the same Congress, what, 90% of the time, while we give them a 20% or less rock bottom <laughs> approval rating, we say they're doing a terrible job, but we keep re-electing them. And I don't think we, we notice our own role in that. But I think overall, Charles, that was a long answer to that question, the funding, the money part of it, and the lack of understanding of our own power as voters and empowering other people to change it. So we do a lot of complaining on social media or whatnot, but we don't really know how simple it is to change it. I mean, this whole story just speaks to the need for social workers to understand 
the campaign process, and it makes me think of Tanya Rosa Smith, uh, the campaign school, right, as the mm -hmm. Nancy Humphreys School of Social Work, so or Public Policy Institute, or the campaign school over there, and uh, that's the kind of training that we need to be incorporating to encourage our students, to encourage future social workers to understand the barriers and overcome the barriers and the hurdles to running for office. Right. We do. We have a website. Voting is social work. Dot org, which we have populated with a lot of information and tools that will be useful for faculty people as well as practitioners to use in their agencies to encourage their clients to register to vote and also to be more civically engaged and be that person in the community who is helping to register people to vote. We feel that this whole, that the voting exercise is an empowerment exercise, you know, that the more we get engaged, community, it benefits the health of communities and the people who are, you know, involved in these, in civic engagement. And then there are, are some materials on our website that are useful for using in the classroom as well. I want to talk a little bit about Chris. We're a 501c4 nonprofit organization that was created three years ago while I was on the Hill with Congressman Adolphus Towns, who is a social worker who served in Congress for 30 years and retired in uh, January 2013. While I was on the Hill with him, we created the Congressional Social Work Caucus. So there is a caucus on the Hill that's made up of social workers and people who align themselves with the ideals of social workers. Currently, there's about 60 members. There are eight members in Congress who are professional social workers. So our focus is really at the federal level, but as Christy was saying, change is made at all levels, from the school boards, elections, to the council elections, and on up. So we do a number of things. We have a student advocacy day on the Hill where we bring students on the Hill for a lobbying exercise to representatives on the Hill, usually advocating for a specific bill. This year we had about 400 students from 45 schools and departments of social work and 16 different states to gather March the 1st for our second Student Advocacy Day. We have another one coming up March the 9th. 2017. So I just want to, if there's students out there who want to come to the Hill and have this advocacy day experience with us, you know, look out for that information. That's great. Yeah, students and faculty, right? Faculty who yes. can oh, yeah. bring their students down and make that maybe even make this part of a class or give extra credit or <laughs> anything. I mean, what incredible energy to be with a bunch of social workers who care about people. You know, no matter what direction you're coming from, the bottom line is we care about people, we care about communities, and we want everyone to thrive, right? So what a day of joy and great energy to be with people like that. I was going to say so, that uh, Linda, Dr. Donaldson, has brought students on the Hill, and I'm sure they were affected by that experience as well. Yes, yeah. It's, that's one of the really wonderful and memorable events that I brought with Chris 
and Charles and the folks Charles works with at CRISP brought students down and they heard from some social workers who are working on the Hill. In fact, one of our graduates from Catholic University is works for Congressman Lewis. He had an opportunity to speak to the students and another woman who was working for, who was the staff person, Charles? Do you remember who, who came with Tom Dorney? I should know her. Who came with Tom? Was that Emma? Yes. Emma yes. Marabi, yeah. She yes. works for Barbara Lee. She was a social worker. Now she's been on the Hill for a few years, and she just was uh, promoted to senior legislative associate. Yeah, well, the students were really fascinated. It really opened their eyes about the kind of careers that social workers could be getting into. They had never really thought of finishing your master's in social work and then going right to the Hill to work for people as storied as Congressman Lewis or Congresswoman yeah. Lee. I mean, wow to have those opportunities, that's pretty remarkable. So that was great. We also used to, myself, Sonny Harris-Rome, others from the social work community, used to run these policy practice forums. That was a full day mm -hmm. event on the Hill that maybe, you know, we were trying to replicate a little bit of that with maybe the Social Work Advocates today or the yeah. our time with you, but giving students an opportunity to hear from members of Congress. Oh, Congressman Towns was one of the most favorite speakers of all time, you know, that came to speak to the students on our policy practice forum day. The students also heard from Dorothy Height, mm. and that was a pretty amazing opportunity for them to, again, hear from people, storied people in our past, social work pioneers, right, people who have made a difference right. for our profession and um, have used their experience to make legislative changes and community changes. If you think about Dorothy Height being the organizer that she was, working at policy at all levels, and then having an opportunity to go to sessions and then do some lobbying themselves on bills that they cared about. And it's a good idea, an opportunity for you is for students and faculty. You don't have to be in D.C. You can join with your chapter of NASW and plan right. a similar event at your general assemblies, those different state assemblies, or county even. It's fun and exciting to speak to our local representatives because they're very accessible. They're our neighbors and they give you a bit more time. And also, when we want to do this with the people we serve, it's very easy to bring them to our local representatives to begin to build relationships and advocate for their own needs. And it's also talk about, you know, we care about the individual and we care about the environment. There are therapeutic benefits. Just my own experience of doing organizing with people who are homeless here in Washington, D.C., building their capacity or growing their capacity because they have a lot of innate, you know, talents and that just need to be, you know, need sort of technical guidance. Their own experience lobbying, testifying, educating each other, planning, strategizing, offer, improves their self-efficacy, their self-esteem, inspires them, they inspire each other. So there's lots of therapeutic benefits, I think, to the policy work of social workers with the people they serve. Well, Chrissy talked about the uh, problems of money in politics, and the only way we're going to make to change that, right, is to get people actively uh, mobilized. You know, it's not going to happen because we can't wish it away, and we have to hold our representatives accountable. And the more people vote, the more they will they all have to listen to you, and so. That's one of the messages I had for the students at Brown, that if you don't vote, nothing's going to change. 
what we usually see is that, okay, a significant number may come out for this election in 2016, but then the next years, 2017, 18, you know, they're not involved. So hopefully one of the things we want to do is actually focus beyond the 2016 election and work very hard to make sure that young people and students are more active in these off-year elections. Christy, maybe a very important skill in policy work, whether you're running for office, whether you're educating on issues, whether you're organizing and mobilizing people, is social media. And I think about you as our social media guru. So maybe you could, if you wouldn't mind, Charles, you can jump in because you write some very effective blogs, you know, I yeah. think, with your crisp. Mm -hmm. I love the blogs. So maybe you two could talk about the role of social media. Charles has got the blogs down. That is not my area. I'm more in the short and sweet Twitter and Facebook pages. What a lot of, I would say, especially faculty, I think it's really important to have a social media presence, but most are really not out there that much. And it's a way that a lot of their students, millennials, and Gen Z are connecting. So I think there's a separateness from faculty and students that doesn't necessarily have to be there. It doesn't have to be as personal as they like to think of it. You don't have to have all your students on your Facebook page, but you could have a public page where it's a teacher page or a public figure page. And I've used that where you can have all of your students on there that can connect to you through Facebook, but you're not reading all of their things. So for faculty, I think that's an important way to make yourself available on social media without having your time taken by having to read what all of your students are doing at all times, past and present. So I've been teaching for 10 years. It's way too many students for that, but I do want to be accessible. And Twitter is a lot different in that, you know, I follow you, you follow me. I've used it more as a lazy business card. It's a great way to connect mm -hmm. with people at conferences. And you can see, after I've attended a conference, all the people I've met by who I've just followed. And it's an easy way for me to see a picture of their face and what their website link is without me having to do a whole lot of work. Because I've got bags and bags, probably like you guys, of business cards mm -hmm. that I never do anything with. And rarely do I remember who it was if I don't have a face attached to it. So mm -hmm. social media is important to have that footprint out there. And organizing-wise, when CSWE is coming up, you know, it's an annual occurrence. And this last year, they've done a really good job on trying to connect, but also using hashtags. One of the things I was thinking when I was listening to both of you talk was partnerships. And a lot of times we do the silo thing, even in social work, where we aren't really talking to other people. And so unless we, and I hear it a lot when we talk about the wicked problems, and we've got our 12 issues in social work. Uh -huh. uh, you know, the UN also has their issues, and it's the 2030 Now issues. And they're the same things, but it's everybody's talking about it in their own way without bridging those gaps. And so we all think we're telling something, you know, reinventing the wheel over and over and over again, rather than everybody working on poverty or getting a multidisciplinary team working on poverty or homelessness or something environmentally related, whether it's global or local most of the goals are going to be the same. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we, we miss a lot of power that way, especially on social media, because the hashtags can cross over. So we could be talking about the conference we're at, say, which would be CSWE, if mm -hmm. that's where we were, along with poverty, hashtag poverty, which everybody's using. So that way we draw in people from other disciplines that are also talking about the same thing from a different perspective. For example, I heard from one of our fellow faculty at USC. They are talking about the PICO Union Project. Mm -hmm. near USC's campus, and they're trying to help with election town halls. So everything from local to national issues, but chaired or moderated, I think, by from Loyola Law School, ethics and all of that. We work with different professions in order to cross boundaries that we aren't necessarily comfortable in. 
and that way, and then they're also going to get a Spanish translator for the local community. So who are you trying to reach, and how are you trying to get them involved? Well, find something that matters to them, rather than just what matters to us, and make sure they can actually understand it. And especially in California, we have a lot of pockets of Spanish speaking only. A lot of times, we have difficulty understanding in our first language what's happening in politics, much less than a second language, and it's harder to get involved that way. So I think we also forget to include, be inclusive in that way. Yeah, and we have a, this a, a communities on Twitter, hashtag macro social work, which uh -huh. is monitored mostly by the uh, University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Mm -hmm. Thursday Twitter chats with ACOSA, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I know there are quite a few people who we regularly interact with on Twitter. We found that to be a really good place, space for us to share what we're doing and to stay abreast of what others are doing in social work. Yeah, Charles, and I think it, you actually just made a great point. I think it's a great room on Twitter, really, for mm -hmm. people who are already involved in macro social work and, and the ones I've been involved in. You know, we're taught it's like you're sharing in a light community. And right. it depends on the purpose, so how we're using social media. If it is to connect with other like-minded people and to brainstorm on action plans and all of that, that's great. That's not as useful, perhaps, for educating people outside of the profession or outside of macro right. social work even, what we want to do to make a change in a certain area. So I think a lot of times we miss purpose, and we're getting better at it, I think, as a profession. But what's the point of being on social media? Who are we trying to reach? How many people will this reach? And who's the most influential? So there's certain groups that are going to, or users that are going to be more influential and with a more diverse following. So it also depends on whoever's following the people in the discussion. <laughs> so if you have a 1,000 people following you, if they're all social workers, it's going to keep it within social work because they're going to see what we're posting about. We are attracting followers outside of social work, and some followers with big voices, like the Brennan Center. When you connect with institutions and organizations like that, and then follow, they're following you, and they know what you're doing, I think you begin to influence beyond the social work community. Uh -huh. And Social well. Justice Solutions, I think, is actually a really, a really great example of an organization or social media presence more than anything that is able to cross boundaries. A lot of people follow social justice solutions and are not social workers. That's the only way they can have the kind of following that they do. And so we have to make ourselves more accessible because a lot of times we don't really do a great job of educating other people on all the things it is that we do. And I know that most of the macro things I'm at, whether it's DC type things, which Charles is more familiar with, or UN, it's often a surprise that they see a social worker in the room like, oh, you're a what? Hmm. You know, like, wow, I didn't even think about you to be here. But that makes sense. You know, it's fine once, <laughs> once you've introduced yourself and they realize your background. But it's, it shouldn't be a surprise that we're there. And we don't just have to go to work in these specific places that we have stereotyped for ourselves. We belong everywhere. Uh -huh. And we belong anywhere that we're working on problems that involve human beings. And there are a lot more places than our typical job placement type jobs that we do. DCFS is great. It's a great place to learn, but we can also apply our skills at the United Nations. So Linda, would, would you not agree that social workers do bring some very valuable skills to this whole arena? Absolutely, yeah. In fact, yeah, not only should we be there, we must be there because we, if we're not in those places where we don't normally find social workers, that perspective is missing. A lot of the policy circles that I worked on in here in D.C., it's 
you know, very lawyer-dominated. And lawyers are wonderful. They're great colleagues. But sometimes when we'd be talking about policy issues, they'd turn to me and say, oh, Linda, well, what are the people actually experiencing? You know? And uh, hopefully when I was doing my job the best, I had the people in the room coming along that were part of the policy-making process. But they really often turn to social workers to find out what's really happening in the world. You know, what's, How are people in poverty really experiencing life? How can you connect us to the real issues, the real experiences of people? So that's, as Christy said, I think early on, we have to, sorry everybody, we have to do it all. We have to understand what the human experiences are, and we have to bring those human experiences either through ourselves, but preferably through the people, to the halls of policymaking. So we bring that perspective that very few, if any, other professions bring. One of the things that we try to do is encourage field placements in legislative settings. When I was on the Hill, we had social workers doing their field placements in a congressional office. And obviously, there are schools who do place uh, students in state-level offices and local offices. And they find that social work students have some really good skills that are useful, particularly for constituents' outreach. So I try to sell it as a win-win situation because it gives students an opportunity to engage their, the government at whatever level. But also, those offices are getting some skilled workers who can reach out to the community. Let me just share, that's a great example. One of our students, our social change students, when she graduated from here, she went back to her home state of Minnesota and worked for her governor in the constituent services office. So it was a great blending of her skills that she learned or honed and refined and uh, made more informed by theory and practice models to bring back to that governor's office to help his constituents and then look at the trends and the patterns of constituent experiences and offer some policy ideas and recommendations to stem the problems that, that the office was hearing about. So yeah, that's a great example, Charles. Well, I'll circle back. This is Christy again. I'll circle back to our clinical people who are out there listening and how they can get involved in being political without giving up what your passion is, especially when you're starting out. If you if you went to school because you want to be a clinician and you're not really interested in legislation and this is all gobbledygook to you and your, your eyes are glazing over and your ears are shutting down, I just want to make sure that you realize that you're also included in this. You can sit one-on-one -on -one with a client, have a private practice, work at children's services, and then still worry about the school lunch program down the street that has a ballot measure. You can organize the parents at the school. You can organize the community to make sure they get out to vote so they don't lose funding for critical programs Absolutely. at the public school. Absolutely. And so you can still focus on your passion, which may be micro, but it doesn't mean you have to give up macro in order to help those very clients you're working with maintain a lot of the benefits that they need or to get benefits that they need for their children or their families, especially children's health care and some of the other critical things that we know our clients need and we sit there and listen to how sad and stressed they are over issues related to poverty and not being able to afford their insurance bill or access adequate health care. And, and I know that the case management is, that can be the tough part of it, but 
this is where you can make a difference on a macro level without giving up your micro dreams. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I would encourage the clinicians who are listening to try to negotiate that as part of your work. And I think it also might help with burnout. When I was hiring social workers to come into clinical positions, because I ran a family services program, and I would ask, oh, why are you interested in this position? And they would say, well, I want to get into management because I'm burned out because when I meet with clients, I have nothing to offer them. I have no housing. I have no job. I have no treatment programs. The city has none of the, you know, we don't have enough to go around. And they were feeling burned out. And instead of getting burned out, channel it, right? Channel that into making part of your day or part of your week or part of your month the more the better, into joining coalitions to address the systemic causes, the structural causes of why people are coming to your doors in the first place. Absolutely, and that might mean just partnering with the local health services program or some of the parish nurses. There are a lot of different programs that focus on health and also have a mental health component. And it doesn't necessarily have to be anything mental health related. It can just be for the needs of your clients. And they may not know about it unless you share or you attend or you partner with some of the things that are already done. You don't have to make something up that's new. A lot of, especially in bigger cities, there are lots of programs that your clients aren't going to hear about it because the place you work isn't putting it on, but they desperately need what's being offered. So a lot of it's just connecting dots for people. And even though it's not something on your plate, maybe you have health insurance or maybe you've got some of these things covered or a legal aid program, it's not for them. So that's where it's helpful to listen to what your clients really need and what they're stressing about. So instead of going, well, I can't do anything about that, you find who can and then try to find some kind of program that you can partner and then help a lot more at your agency mm -hmm. than just the one client that you have. Well, before we close, I wanted to uh, let people out there know that we will be doing our first political boot camp in July of 2017, July 9th through the 13th. It will be a three-day intensive training for social workers who are interested in getting into politics, whether you want to run for office or you want to be in campaigns or you just want to learn a lot more about politics and from a social work perspective. So you might want to keep your eye out for that. Is there a place to get information about that, Charles? That's really great news. They would go to our website, chrisinc.org, C-R-I-S-P-I-N-C.org. There's no information on the website yet, but there should be shortly. I can be contacted at C-E-L-E-W-I-S-J-R at chrisinc.org. And Linda, how do we get a hold of you if we want to know more about what you've been talking about? Yeah, and mine is easy, Linda Plitt Donaldson. My email address is Donaldson, D-O-N-A-L-D-S-O-N, at C-U-A dot E-D-U. And Christy, share yours, including your Twitter handle. Maybe you'll get a lot of followers <laughs> after this uh, broadcast. Okay, you can reach me at K-C Holmes. K-C-H-O-L-M-E-S at U-S-C dot E-D-U. And my Twitter handle is at Dr. Christie, D-R-K-R-I-S-T-I-E on Twitter. And those of you who haven't started a Twitter account yet, go ahead and make one and I will help you along, I promise. We need social workers on Twitter. Hello again. 
This is your co-host Charles Sims. You have been listening to a panel discussion on social work and politics with Drs. Linda Plitt Donaldson, Christy Holmes, and Charles E. Lewis Jr. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.